Well, good evening, everybody. It's Chris here from the Whistle Stop Cafe in New Alberta, and I am also a strong supporter and advocate for the Alberta Prosperity Project. Um, if you don't already know the Alberta Prosperity Project, uh, they are an educational society, and their goal is to educate Albertans as to the uh, the necessity for the, the the merits, the benefits of Alberta independence and the path to get there. So tonight we have a special guest. Uh, her name is Margaret Copala. Correct? Did I get it right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, good. Okay, I'm one for one so far. So a little bit about Margaret. She was born in 1945, although you wouldn't know it from uh, looking at her. But so good on you, Margaret. Uh, mm -hmm. Born in 1945 in northeastern Alberta. Margaret was educated in Edmonton, where she became uh, East Glen Composite High High's first girl president of the Students' Union. She graduated from the University of Alberta with a BA in English Lit and a BFA in Drama, then traveled to Europe before working in British television production, mostly for the BBC and in the Canadian feature film industry. Uh, Citizens' initiatives on the Constitution led to her being selected as an ordinary Canadian in the conferences leading to the Charlottetown Accord. That's that's awesome. Uh, active in citizen-based public policy forums, such uh, forums as well as church and community life, Margaret's articles and letters have been widely published and can be read on this website. She has also produced and hosted community television shows and regularly provides media commentary on conservative issues. In 1997, she was the progressive conservative candidate in Ottawa West Nepean and then became one of the earliest and most active proponents of unity between the PC and reform parties. She subsequently contested the nominations in Ottawa West uh, of the newly formed Canadian Alliance and Conservative parties in 2000 and 2005 respectively. As chair of the National Debaters Forum, she organized nationally televised debates between leading politicians, commentators and academics such as uh, David Frum, Hugh Segal, Ted Morton, Charles Taylor and Tom Oh boy, this is a tough one. I'm going to try and get it right. 14. No longer active in partisan politics, Margaret concluded several years of writing freelance columns for the Ottawa Citizen in 2009. She continues to write on public policy issues and after serving as Director of Research and Policy Development for the Canadian Centre for Policy Studies, she founded and served as President of the Centre for Immigration Policy Reform until 2015. Resident in Ottawa since 1986, she is married to political philosopher and journalist Dr. Robert Sibley. They have one grown son, psychologist Dr. Daniel Kapala Sibley. So that is quite the intro, and uh, I, I did watch a couple uh, videos of of your your stuff uh, a couple days ago, and I can see why it's so well put together. I mean, you've you've been involved in in policy and politics and advocacy for for longer than I've been alive. So, well, thank you for that. It's in, it's in the blood. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a self-confessed wonk. Uh, there isn't a problem out there that I don't think about how to solve it, and uh, particularly in the political field. So, uh, you know, an opportunity comes my way. C2C has recently been publishing a lot of my material. C2C Journal has been publishing a lot of my material, so I just dig right in. Awesome. That's good because there's uh I'm I'm of the opinion that there's two types of people in the world, those who talk about problems and those who deal with them. So uh it's always great to heal hear from people who uh want to deal with problems. So with that said, 
Um, and in the context of the videos I've seen uh, of stuff you've done over the last few days, what what kind of problems are you uh, uh, looking to find solutions for these days? Like everything's fine. We live in a free and democratic society. Nothing wrong. So what's uh, why would there be any problems? Well, the you know the the I mean the, the, they're they're too numerous really to even begin to, to enumerate. I mean everything from wokeism to globalism to uh, you know the the um, sheer inadequacy in a lot of ways of our leading public figures who who are just do not quite ever seem to be up to the job. Uh, we see it in the United States. We see it here in Canada. We see it in Europe. Um, lots of backlash against establishment thinking, lots of, um, so, you know, I mean, you're sampling it there in Alberta, you're go, you go through it routinely. Um, but more specifically, um, I was absolutely incensed with how the pandemic was being managed. I dug down into all the issues around the mandates and around the um, uh, and around the treatment, you know, the, the controversies around that, around uh, COVID nineteen treatments, and latterly, and the and the issue that brings me uh, to you today is, of course, the um, the influence of the World Economic Forum. Um, CTC asked me to do a review of a new book uh, that has just been published in the last couple of weeks, which is a series of essays. Um, which argue against the Great Reset, uh, the, re the Great Reset as espoused by the World Economic Forum and in particular its leader, Klaus Schwab, uh, who has written now three books um, effectively on the, sub on, on the subject. Um, just to bring your readers and your viewers up to speed, the World Economic Forum was, um, was first first um, established in 1971 by, by Schwab, who was a professor of business in Switzerland and economics. And um, it, it's slowly grown to be uh, started out as a talk fest. Um, he gathered together the world's uh, industrial, uh, technocratic, political elite on a regular basis to a place in Switzerland called Davos. Which he, which then became a regular annual thing where they would network and um, talk big ideas about how you know how industry should work, how how the world should work, and eventually just got everybody who was anybody coming to these coming to these um, uh, to these events. Well, what should have remained a mere talk fest and a networking opportunity turns out not to have been stayed that way. <laughs> and um, what has come to our attention is how slowly um, a whole agenda has developed around the World Economic Forum, which is slowly insinuating itself into various uh, parts and aspects of how the world works. It's a because they have so many influential members who are extremely well healed, um, they have the wherewithal, the means and, and the skills by which, with which to do this. So what's the agenda you say? So um, 
these the agenda is very clearly spelled out in three three books written by Schwab himself. So the first one in 1971, where he talks about something called stakeholder capitalism. The second one, uh, where he educates his readership uh, on the subject of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, of course, uh, we know that we've had at least one industrial revolution, the, the big one that was that we know uh, through for which we only have really good da data starting in the late 18th century, which was the the you know which brought us industrialization and uh, and yes fossil fuels. If you look at any chart uh, of of world growth, economic growth in the world, you'll see that from time immemorial the chart was like this. But the minute you add fossil fuels to the mix growth goes like this straight up it's mm -hmm. a spike in, in 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 the human dynamic so um yes and and that in turn that first industrial revolution yes has turned into various types of innovation brought brought with it various types of innovation which in turn have spurred more kinds of revolutions. He's calling this one the fourth. I personally have written a book on the subject of the technological transition cycle, where um, which in which there's a great body of scholarship that shows how through a combination of of, um, of innovation and cheap energy sources, uh, capitalist economies undergo major cyclic cyclical change. Uh, they in capitalist economies it takes the form of of expansion, crisis, and contraction. Uh, depressions come along every 50 to 60 years. So to that extent, you know, Schwab is, is, is on the right track in talking about a great reset as he does in his final book, uh, which is the great reset. Um, so yes, so the question was, now I'm no authority on either Schwab or the World Economic Forum, all I know about it is what has been written and detailed in this wonderful book against, which is the, the title of which is Against the Great Reset. But I was happy to give it, um, you know, 100% endorsement because I ended up so well educated <laughs> about the World Economic Forum. And I urge all your viewers to go out and get themselves a copy of this book. I think it's a gift. It's a gift to conservatives because it is so informative. And what you've got is 18, um, 18 scholars, I mean, far more erudite than I am, uh, who look at all different aspects of the Great Reset. And um, from various perspectives, economic, cultural, religious, um, and, and of course, historical. And these are very, very, um, very um, prestigious um, writers. I mean, people, Douglas Murray, Victor Hansen, these will be authors that will be, uh, be, be familiar. I mean, they're out on YouTube all the time so they may actually be familiar to to some of your viewers as well so yes this this is how i come to had all of a sudden found myself immersed in the subject of the world economic forum well little did i know that um that they had actually before i started this project that the world economic forum had actually um uh, contracted had was already out there, you know, doing contracts with various governments. Um, this talk fest, this networking 
um, in, in, uh, uh, organization all of a sudden was out there actually doing stuff and um, doing stuff that slotted right in with uh, with with the agendas and the ideas that were being fulminated on their website. There's a massive website that describes the White World Economic Forum, who they are, what they're doing, and uh, and their ideas for how the, how the world should work. These are that, this is, yeah. How this, the world. This, <laughs> sorry to interrupt. This became concerning and downright frightening to me when it became not just ideas and uh, talking points and things like that, but it started to influence policy. Because what I'm seeing, uh, a lot of the politicians these days, one comes to mind, uh, Justin Trudeau, he is a, a very strong advocate for a great reset of some sort. He also admires China's basic dictatorship. Uh, he says that a small fringe group of Canadians have unacceptable views and shouldn't be tolerated. So my concern is, when you have groups like the WEF um, no longer just offering solutions and, and you know, you know, giving Ooh. some ideas, when you have them starting to influence policy, I never voted for any of them. I never, I never asked for that stuff to be brought into my government. And now we have our politicians putting forth some of their stuff as policy. That's what concerns me. So I guess a burning question is, is that is the WEF and what they're doing uh, threatening our democracy? Well, I, it's it's not just the World Economic Forum. I mean, we are now on the brink of having a whole layer, a whole layer of jurisdictions, you know, presiding way above our our national our legislatures, of people who are these I, I call them these these faceless technocrats in remote institutions, who are coming out with, uh, dare I say, Stalinist prescriptions for how the world should work. And whether it's climate change or whether it's more re most recently as the World Health Organization, uh, which has in the last few months tried to assign to, its, to itself the authority to have to, to, to determine how pandemics should be managed on the global level. Now, I mean, who if nobody elected these people? They are, uh, yes, they're experts, all many are, you know. You know, pure experts in their area, no problem with that. But they're, you know, they're they're there now, trying to tell us what to do and how we should go about it. Not only that, but um, the the um, when you start drilling down to you know who's linked to who and how they're all functioning together, I'll give you an interesting set of dates I have prepared for this. Um, I'm going to give you a little timeline on on uh, on the pandemic um, and who some of these players are. You've got in October of 2019, there was something Johns Hopkins University organized something called Event 201. What was Event 201? It was a small confabulation, a little consortium of the World Economic Forum, representatives from the World Economic Forum, Johns Hopkins, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and so on, to discuss what to do in case there was a pandemic. That's October 2019. In December of 2019, the virus broke out in Wuhan. In January, of 
2020, the World Health Organization declared a national and a public health emergency of international concern. By March, they declared a pandemic. And by July of 2020, you had Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum publishing a book called The Great Reset and how the, how the pandemic was such a wonderful opportunity. Mm-hmm. That word is out there a lot, right? Do you remember? Your your own own it was a great opportunity to rebuild, reset, build back better, do all that stuff. Well, they have the language and everything all ready for everybody to use. Now, bear in mind that organizations like the World Health Organization, yes, they, it is funded by, by individual nations, but it is also funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It is also funded by, the, um, by various pharmaceutical companies. In other words, all kinds of vested interests all of whom are tied to the world economic forum, all of whom are tied to, uh, in, in, in Europe, it's the Wellcome Trust. I mean, you have this whole slew of, of all, I mean, I don't know if, if the word is oligarch is, is, is the correct word here, but you have this whole slew of high-powered, big, huge vested interests who are cross-influencing each other throughout these various organizations, and not one of us voted for any of them. So, you know, okay, you know, they may have the most wonderful ideas in the world about how things should work, and nobody doubts their expertise and their accomplishments. But hold on, is this right? Is this how things, is this how, 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 how things should work? I'm not sure. I'm, this is very troubling. Now, um, when Sean contacted me, or rather when I just heard, about, you know, when we finally got the agenda for today's meeting, I did some, uh, namely, how did the Alberta Health Service get caught up with the World Economic Forum? Because mm-hmm. apparently there was a con- there was a contract with the World Economic Forum, uh, and the the so I did some digging around. What's the relationship between the Alberta Health Service and and and, and the World Health? Well, actually, there's a really nice uh, little spiel from Alberta Health Services uh, about this precise uh, issue. And it's, you know, couldn't be more encouraging, more positive, and more uh, forward-looking. Why? Because the World Economic Forum apparently invited the Alberta Health Services to join in a, a very elite group of uh, a consortium of, of health, health, health-related servers, people who are in, engaged in the health area. Who are they? Mayo Clinic, John Hopkins University, Duke University. Um, there's probably a handful more of, of really high-end, really expert, best in their field kind of uh, organizations. And you think, well, gee, that's really impressive, you know, Alberta Health Services. And you can imagine how, how impressed they would be too to be invited to join with this group. But then you ask yourself, well, hold on. what? Why was it? Why were they invited, and why wasn't anybody else invited? Well, maybe they are that great. Maybe Alberta, you know, Alberta has all kinds of potential. They're doing all kinds of great things, and yes, it makes sense that they should network and they should exchange ideas and get together. But and then you say to yourself, "But wait a minute! Isn't this what 
uh, you know, isn't this what best practice units do in 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 various government departments, or do do government departments not have these best practice units? I.e., units who are active out there, always checking to see what other organizations are doing and how well they're doing them, and why you know, and connecting up with them and borrowing some ideas here and checking that idea. We live in the internet age. We live in the Zoom age. It's very easy to, you know, check around. So you think, well, I mean, this sounds like some elite exclusive, you know, big boys club that probably meets for nice expense account lunches and business travels by business class, airfares and all that. And you think, hmm, okay. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, I thought to myself, and I started checking around to see, well, um, where exactly is this, what is the state of, of Canadian healthcare um, in, in terms of its rankings internationally? And sure enough, what you find if you look around uh, and check with the OECD's rankings, and it doesn't matter which study you look at, I just did a cursory look, but it was, it's, smacks you in the face, frankly, that Canada's healthcare system, not only is it nowhere near the top, like Norway or Sweden, in terms of its health outcomes and value and, you know, access and all of those things, not only is it nowhere near the top, it is somewhere just below the middle. And in some cases, it's at the bottom. Well, maybe not quite the bottom, because just underneath Canada is the United States. Well, the Mayo Clinic may be doing great things if you have the money to go to get work done there. But uh, and maybe that's something that Alberta is aspiring to, to offer this exclusive service that people will have to pay international. Well, we have one of those here in Ontario already. Well, fine, if that's what you're looking for. But I found myself thinking, hold on, why uh, in this state? And there's all kinds of reasons why, I'm sure. But anybody who dares to really stick their neck out and say, what's wrong with our healthcare system? One of the things that, re that, that hits you is it's not the doctors, it's not the cost of doctors, it's not the cost of nurses, it's not even the cost of infrastructure. It's the administration. We yes. have all this administration. Yeah. And now we're saying it's all right for you to gad about. And so, so, I mean, you see where we're going here. I and mean, you have to say, then find, well, what is the World Economic Forum's real agenda here? And, and what are they asking Alberta to buy into finally? Okay. Well, they're asking to buy that into I more bureaucracy. Know. That I don't know. That I don't I, know. I would say it, 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 it carries a, a more bureaucracy with it for sure. And uh, interestingly enough, I just actually interviewed a man by the name of Dr. William Mackis yesterday, and he's been talking about the administrative side of AHS and how it's causing um, lower service, lower or worse outcomes for patients. There are reasons why our healthcare is the way it is, and it's because it's not about best practices when it comes to, in my, this is my opinion, it's not about best practices when it comes to um, patient outcome. It's about best practices for the administration in order to keep their jobs and hire more administrators. And now we have a group of external administrators injecting themselves into our policy here. 
So that's right. if that's allowed, I mean, if our system is set up so that outside influence can, in, outside influences can do that, um, that, that's very concerning to me. Very concerning, yes. And yes. especially considering um, these outside influ influencers. Now, I'm in particular, the WEF has referred to human beings as useless eaters, right? <laughs> this, is, this is a very dangerous group. Yes, and uh, I mean, you know, and for a group which is, which is uh, it just blatantly espouses a globalist agenda. I mean, these are the, the these are part of a group, a, a very big group of of, in, of of progressives out there who think that the answer to global problems is is global solutions, and so you can see how you know one if you started integrating. Our our healthcare systems and got the best and brightest from Canada to come in and join with the best and brightest over there, and you know how you then could maneuver and set it up so that it got that little bit more global, right? Mm -hmm. So it's it's it, as I say, it's very troubling. One of the things that the that the book against the Great Reset, one of the one of the most compelling arguments in it is. Um, against the Great Reset is that uh, the, the great solutions to the world's problems have never come at the global level. They've always come from human ingenuity at the local level. Mm -hmm. So, and 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 by taking that approach, you minimize risk. So, if you do make a mistake, it's local. You're not having making this mistake on a global scale. I mean, globalist, a global solution can easily become a global catastrophe. And well, I think it has. We're actually, we may be witnessing that unfold in real time Indeed. as we speak. We had a global problem, uh, or we thought we had a major problem. It turns out that it wasn't as major as we thought. We were pushed into a global solution, and now we're starting to see some serious follow from that. Indeed, indeed. And now, and of course, if, if you're referring, I assume you're, you're referring to the pandemic, and now the WHO wants to have carte blanche authority over how pandemics are managed. Now, I beg your pardon? So, uh, yeah, you, you, you see where this goes. Um, uh, and, and, I mean, history is, is, is full of examples of how, you know, whether it's basic innovations, simple things like, you know, the internal combustion engine or electrical engines or, uh, you know, spinning wheel or, or uh, the, um, you know, the assembly line. These are all the results of fraud and error at the local level, and somebody then came up with, with exactly the right formula for coming up with that transformative innovation that the rest of the world then adopted. But that's how you have to do it. And the role of government in those situations was not to, you know, to, to, to go out, you know, make it happen. You can't make these happen. You, you know, individuals recognize problems. And they work them out for themselves, and then they test them, and then they prove to everybody else that they're worthy ideas. Government yes. doesn't have a role in that. I mean, you 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 can, and whether with all the monetary and fiscal stimulus in the world, you, you you can take the horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You cannot find those cheap sources of energy. You cannot find. Uh, you know, the answer to whatever little problem there is. It's going to be somebody in some lab somewhere or somebody working in a field somewhere or somebody. That's how these things happen. 
So the um, and that is what um, what our governments should be looking to enable. Enable and one of the great essays in this in in, in in against the Great Reset actually talks about how the Industrial Revolution came about in the first place in England. Pure and simple, two things: patent rights and uh, and and um, uh, property rights. All of a sudden, people knew that they were able to that whatever they did would be their own and they would profit from it or they could promote them or they could give them away or you know do whatever they wanted with but it was it, it, these things were theirs so the government created a path they removed roadblocks that's right. uh, in order to encourage people to actually be innovative that's right that's what they should be doing i i totally i totally agree with that but i think we're seeing quite the opposite right now and this is fresh on my mind because I actually just interviewed Dr. Peter McCullough again this morning. But what governments are doing right now and quasi-government organizations like the College of Physicians and Surgeons and, and that type of thing, they're actually putting up roadblocks and preventing innovation, which, uh, it, you know, I don't think in any time in history uh, hasn't resulted in harms to people or loss of life. And, and we're seeing that right now. So a lot of this, uh, a lot of these ideas coming from a global organization um, a lot of this is putting more roadblocks to, to limit how we innovate and deal with problems on our own at a local level. But thank goodness there are some people who have the uh, intestinal fortitude to innovate regardless of consequences. So we're, we're seeing some, some move there. But I guess the, 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 the million-dollar question here is – and let me back up. Let me back up a minute. On the surface, it sounds good that we all work together globally. We all, uh, you know, we're, we have free trade and this and that. We we all have equal opportunity, but I think they want equal outcome. It sounds great. Everybody has what they need. Nobody goes without. But there is a darker side to this. And what is it? I'm gonna I'm gonna let you explain it because I know you know. What is it about this idea of equal outcome for all that will cause devastating impacts on humanity? Well, apart from anything else, it's impossible to achieve. Um, you can. You, there's a reason why our you know, founding fathers, various political philosophers, have always talked in terms of individual rights. And equal, equal, and, and and limiting government to areas like like um, helping with e equality of opportunity. At least the governments can help a little bit with that by offering, you know, basic healthcare, basic education, giving people that little bit of a leg up, so that they can then fly from there. But guaranteeing equal outcome, I mean, think about where that goes. I mean, we're, we would all end up, you know, numbers on a, you know, on, a, on an assembly line somewhere. With, with no purpose and no reason to innovate. No purpose and no, no reason to do anything at all because it's all, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, this is one of the one of the crying descriptions that come that come out of communist systems where people describe this colorless lackluster life 
but they leave because nobody can do anything to improve their properties. Nobody can do anything to change their jobs. Nobody can do anything to do something a little bit better over there. You stand in line for this. You might do a little bit of, you know, so, so no, um, equality of outcome is, but you see, we have, you know, in our, the progressive left, and because of the corruption of so much of our education systems and people, you know, we have we have whole generation now that is growing up without knowing any of this stuff, who are not um, don't are, are not understanding even 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 the most basic bits of history or the ba most basic bits of, of of particularly our political history and how we how you know we got to where we are and why we are able to offer them the right to complain you know on my favorite line we're coming up to to um to remembrance day i mean i i i i i seize every opportunity to say you know we have we had millions millions of mostly white men who died for the right of the rest of us to complain about them. Now think about that. And do you know what? Most of them would do it again. Mm -hmm. It's a, um, but try to tell, you know, try, try to, try to say that without being called, uh, I mean, would you be called a racist for saying that? I don't know. I haven't been so far. I don't think you can men mention uh, nationality or color these days in any context no. without being called racist, but I mean, there's wokeism for you. I guess. Yes. Um, in, your, in your digging you've done regarding the WEF in particular, because that's a hot topic right now. Mm. Uh, what What have you found? Like, who are the people involved with this? Is there anyone involved in the WEF, say, uh, maybe a board of trustees or anything like that, that's heavily integrated yeah. into Canadian politics? Like yes. Our policymakers. I mean, what's interesting about this is that that over these over the years, over the last three decades, when Klaus Schwab has been building this unit up, um, he's had a stream of individuals come through, young people particularly, and that he has dubbed young global leaders. And yes, he is quite fond of pointing out that half of half of Trudeau's cabinet were were uh, World Economic form young global leaders. Now, whether, you know, I mean, what that means, who knows? Did they just show up at the odd conference? Did they have to take a course of some kind? I don't know. But, you know, their names are all listed there. And yeah, a lot of them are in Trudeau's cabin. That not only that, but at, but at least one of them is still on the board of trustees. That's Christopher Freeland. Um, it looks like Mark Carney also was a was on the board of trustees and may still be. It's hard to say when you Google around. I mean, I, I have a sneaking suspicion a lot of people are scrambling now to get their names removed because the 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 uh, the, the, the light is off the the, the shine is off the um, uh, off the, the World Economic Forum. I think at the moment. So yes, well, but these people exist everywhere. I mean, the, you know, the young global leaders are everywhere. They're all over the world, and they come from all parts of uh, of the globe. They're Chinese, they're African, they're this, that, everywhere. Um, and uh, and then, of course, you have the actual big, the heavy, the big players like Bill Gates, uh, like some of the um, like some of the big tech people. Uh, and you know who are who are 
um, and then they have a full staff as well. Many of these are people are are. Um, they, it, it, I mean, it, it is a full, uh, full, full blown, full, fully developed organization. They've got headquarters in Geneva, and um, and I think they've got offices in New York. I mean, it, this is a you know, and they've they've. They put out papers all the time, and they put out. Um, I mean, they're all there to be read. Uh, they've got a whole list of the of the of the companies which are associated with them. Now, alphabetically, you, you you click on a on a on a, a, a an alphabet, um, a letter of the alphabet, and then you get a whole stream of the companies which are start with that letter of the alphabet. So no, this is a, a um, my big concern, I have to say my big concern about the World Economic Forum is that it is positioning to become um, an adjunct of the, of the United Nations and to take on the a global, econo a global economic role, not unlike what the World Health Organization is doing. So, and now, as you know, I mean, we've got everybody as this pandemic uh, the pandemic illustrated so clearly. I mean, nobody breathed. Nobody would dare issue a word until the World Health Organization came out first. I mean, here in this country, we did. You know, we didn't declare a pandemic, although you would have thought that we had the expertise to decide for ourselves whether or not we were felt we were part of a pandemic. Uh, nobody breathed out of a word until the World Health Organization. Um, said, yes, it's a pandemic. And away we went. We were all in a pandemic. So, um, and I thought, well, you know, couldn't Mrs. couldn't Mrs. Tam have said something about this herself? But it turns out she sits on the board with, with uh, I, I believe she's actually on, ah. on the board. Or she's, she's our representative at the World Health Organization. I expect she'll get it, you know, if she were to leave the, her position today, she'd get a very nice sinecure at the World Health Organization. So you and, see this, these things that are uh, that are that 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 you know these the, the technocrats have it nicely sewn up for themselves. Yeah. And and herein lies the conspiracy. So when I look at this, I see people who support and are supported by the WEF in positions of power, influencing policy. Let's take for instance Bill Gates and Justin Trudeau, just because they're easy sure. to talk about because they're so corrupt. Um, both have vested financial interests in the pandemic response that the WEF has said and the WHO has said that we need to do, which is mass vaccinations. No matter whether they work or not, apparently, um, and that's just my opinion, YouTube, uh, they, they accept these proposals from WHO, WEF, and they push them on us, and they benefit financially from these things. And this the, these are only two of dozens or maybe hundreds of ties to people um, that are benefiting from bad policy that's yeah. they're able to force on us yeah i'm not sure about about trudeau i mean i i'm I, I wouldn't i know nothing about his financial interests in anything but certainly bill gates is he had he has his i mean he brags openly about his investments in the pharmaceutical companies how much money he made and of course the fact that he is um uh, involved in, in various aspects of, of of their development as well. Well, Justin Trudeau has uh, a decent financial stake in a company out of Burnaby that manufactures the nanolipid technology that encapsula encapsulates part of the COVID vaccine. So, 
you know, and this this information is publicly available. It has been for quite a while, and uh, it's it's not a secret that he he actually benefits from this. But there's more examples from this, and I'm I only use that one because I'm it's not a, sure it's, about that actually. I'm, I mean, I I've, I've I've had a look at that as well, and I think that's very difficult to make any categorical statements about that. Okay, anyway, well we can. I we mean, can I'd be very well. surprised that he would be that blatant. I mean, I'm sure he. Whatever, if he if he ever had any interest, he certainly would have divested by now. Nothing surprises me anymore. But um, the the opportunity for this is there. Trouble. Pardon me. I don't want you to get into any trouble here with this one. I'm always in trouble, so I'm used to it. If I wasn't in trouble, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Okay. So, I guess wh where do we go from here? I mean, we have a premier in Alberta who has publicly stated that she has no interest in having the WF involved in policy in Alberta and she wants to eject them from our our matters here uh but what what is like what does this mean for the rest of Canada and and is is our premier correct to do things more on our own rather than accept outside influences on our policy well i think that that i mean the first the first thing any um, uh, any uh, jurisdiction, any department within any jurisdiction should have a best practices unit. And that from there, you check out to see what's going on in the rest of the world. They check out what's going on and what should they be adopting and what should they be adapting for their own purposes. And can they help anybody else? I mean, I'm all for, and I think cooperation, exchange of information, all of those things, whether, and, and to have international organizations that help facilitate that is, is not a bad thing. Although increasingly we are able to do it ourselves because we live in the Zoom aid where we've got the internet. There's no excuse for not exchanging information anymore. But the end, but um, yeah, so I mean, technically, you have to say, why do we need the, the WEF? Well, we don't, um, except that somehow or other they've set themselves up. And we do have, uh, as, as these experts and authorities on certain matters, and um, and somehow or other, you know, people get sucked into it. Uh, there's a lot of glamour associated with it. These are high flyers. They're, you know, the best people in the business and in the practice. And I mean, all of those things, highly, highly successful people. This is very seductive. And so, you know, you have, so the question, what you have to say is, well, hold on, no, let's, let's just take it easy here. Let's respect what they're doing, but maybe let's keep it all arm's length, please. Um, and and go from there. Other, you know, the, the, it's it because it is so amorphous, and because there's a psychology involved here in drawing people in. And I mean, I don't know if you read the the uh, my piece on totalitarianism at, at the in also in the C2C journal. I, this is another book that I I've um, I review for C2C journal, which is the uh, Matthias Desmond book on the psychology of totalitarianism. And I mean, it, it, it is a very subtle process. I mean, how people, um, how people uh, are seduced and drawn in and who, you know, if you have exactly the right conditions to, you know, that, 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 that lend you to being seduced and taken in by something, um, that, um, that that it can be all enveloping, and and the problem is that this happens at the societal level. It's not something that happens just to 
one or two people. It, you know, the whole peoples get pulled into to totality to, to totalitarian style thinking. It's not just imposed. Totalitarianism is seldomly imposed. It's something that builds up within people and they all buy into a narrative. Oh, all the experts. Right? Oh, then, we gotta look at the experts. And and then by buying into it, they they become some sort of virtuous, you know, because they're, you know, they're, they're a virtuous right. good and, person and, because and, they're. And even when, even when, uh, even when it becomes clear that bad things are happening and things are, you know, it, it is that much more difficult for them to withdraw or, or, or step aside or say, no, 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 you know, that. So, um, so it's very important that the ones who are on top of this, um, speak out matthias is very good on the subject of how uh, those who are aware of what's going on uh, must approach this with the utmost respect and kindness and uh non-unaggressively because the last thing you want i mean you want to bring these people out of their um totalitarian mindset as uh, um, it, you know as best you can without making things worse so what happens if we don't? What happens if we just let this run its course and allow these influences to influence our policy and keep our head in the sand? Everything's fine. No problems. We're just going to go with it. What's no, the, where are we headed? You can't. It, it, well, we have to keep speaking out as we are now. This has, there's no question about that. And then, uh, and, and sooner or later, you're going to get a critical mass of people who are going to figure this out as well. Um, the, the, um, you know, the, the danger is, I mean, the, the, there comes a tipping point where to all totalitarian regimes uh, or systems, I wouldn't call them regimes, and it's uh, systems tip into atrocities. And then hopefully that's when everybody, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to that. You, you want you want to be able to to um, get people out of it, uh, out, out of that mindset before that happens. So, so no, got it, it, it's very important where um, you know how how society handles its dissidents, how it handles its um, uh, you know how we how we handle our you know uh, how we protect free speech, how we how we go about facilitating debate, how we um, I'm very big on on um, one of my very very big. Uh, pet peeves is the subject of how language is used, abused, and dis distorted, uh, and particularly the issue of, of name calling, uh, which I feel has there are several several levels involved in the, the whole sphere of, of name calling. Of course, everybody remembers of how Trudeau demonized the uh, the truckers, right, and name calling them. The small uh, fringe minority. We've That's heard a right. lot in, in in Alberta here, for sure. I mean, embarrassing cousin, sewer rats. Uh, I've been called a rebel in the scofflaw. Uh, yeah, sure, it's sure. Never ending. Okay, okay. So let's take name calling at level one, which is the bully boy in the schoolyard, and calls somebody else an awful name. And you know why he does it is because he probably, you know, he can't make the case. He can't figure out any way other way of communicating and and getting his bully boy ways. So right. that so. He, he, he resorts to name calling, and the retort is, "You know, sticks and stones may but name, you know, names will never hurt me." So, then the next level up is at, at a similar level where 
you've got an honest argument going and the person literally can't make the case for his side of you know, whatever he thinks his case is, but he can't make it. And hence the, hence the phrase, you know, name calling is the last refuge of the intellectual bankrupt. They can't make the case, so they resort to name calling. So that's when you know, again, oh, this guy just, you know, they, they've lost it. They don't know what they're talking about. So just, you know, you, you, you let it go. Where it gets pernicious is where you have at the political level, where name calling is now being used for, for one of two purposes. First is to shut down debate. You want to shut down debate, then you call somebody a name. And often it works because nobody likes to be called a name. So you don't fight back. You can make your case, but you don't like to fight back. So, you know, and that's it. And that's you're a racist, you're this, that, you're homophobic, you're whatever. They the politicians, this happens in, in, in our politics all the time. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's what it's all about, is to shut down the debate. And it goes <laughs> it goes further and further in, into atrocities, right? And one, yes. one thing that surprises me is the WF is very, very clear and they don't hide it at all on one of their goals is to depopulate. And the and the number is mind-blowing. It's they say that we should only have 1.5 billion people on the planet. That means that 7 billion people will not be on the planet. Um, I, and, and it's, oh, they don't talk about how we get there, right? Of course, they'll volunteer to go first, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they would. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But uh, I know. I find that let, me get, let me get to the final and, and most pernicious, which is the pathologizing of, okay. of your political opponents because this is where it gets very sinister. Once you reduce your political opponent to something that's unspeakable, something that's just the scum of the earth, that's just too awful, not you can't even, there you finally set up the situation where not only do you not have to debate with them, it's not just about shutting down debate, it's, oh, you don't have to debate. They're just too, too uh, unworthy, too awful, too, you know, and then, this is how the Jews were treated by Nazi, in Nazi Germany. And you've got, then the next step is, what's the next step? Well, they're so unspeakable, so awful, so scum of the earth. They're dirty. So it's all right, so it's all right if we just dispose of them. That's what, that's pathologizing your political opponent. That's a wonderful phrase. It's not mine, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the fellow who came up with it, but it's a, it is so just, engrave that in your in your in your memory pathologizing your political opponent likening your opponent to a virus that needs to be vaccinated away yeah something like that yes so that's these are the these are the things to watch for and it's very important people like you and i speak out about this all the time all the time well we certainly appreciate the the efforts that you're making on this and i have no intention of stopping i uh you know, we, we see what's coming and it's out in plain sight. And I, I like sometimes I feel like we're just shouting from the rooftops. And that actually brings up a question. I, I believe one of the questions came from the, the Facebook stream. Um, is, is Alberta the only province with ties to the WEF or is the WEF infiltrated other provinces and other levels of government in Canada? I have the, I, oh, yes, the, the liberals 
have contracted with the WEF to do something with regard to a digital ID system. Ah, yes. I believe our uh, Alberta bank, the ATB, is also involved in that, along with the digital currency. Yes, yes. So you can see where this one's going. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk about about digital currencies and uh, central bank digital currencies. Um, but so far, we, ha we've, we haven't heard that. Well, we have heard about digital IDs, particularly because so many of us thought that the vaccine passport was the first step towards a, um, a digital ID system. And yeah, I mean, you know, you flash your passport and you can come in here or you can't go there. You can only do this and you can, can't do that. That's, uh, that's what the passport facilitated. Well, one step from that would be a whole system that gives us, now, okay, you can see how, you know, this might have some merits, how attractive it would be. And your average citizen might be think, gee, yeah, this is not a bad idea. We get all our records put into one system and, and you know, we don't have to flip around in files and we don't have to. And But at the same time, once you're digitized, it means somebody has access to all that information. And yeah. now, unlike before, it's all in one place. Heck, you can even have it implanted in your skin. Sweden already has the model for that um, little little thing that goes, you know, in your wrist or wherever else. So, no, um, I mean, one of the things we have to be aware of with with uh, developments like this, of course, is just watch to see what's going on in China, which has the which already has a digital. ID system and has a social credit system and, and they get, they are monitored for how they behave. It's used as a behavior modification scheme. Uh, if, um, if depending on how well you behave, you get some points and if you don't, and if you don't behave very well, you get points subtracted or you're prevented from doing certain things. Um, so yes, it's a, um, that's, uh, the, this is, this is the, the downside. Well, it sounds great because yeah. then if if so, if the if the government doesn't like what somebody's doing or speaking out against them, they could just turn them off. I mean, that would be that would be amazing, right? Well, don't count on it. They would turn off all kinds of other things before they turn you off, right? Yeah, and yeah. You know, you'd be a useful example. So, no, we are moving into a. I mean, once you move into. Um, uh into the into the digital world and and its uses for controlling behavior and for affecting and monitoring our health and and i mean there is another upside is yes I mean, we could end up with all kinds of doodads that that help us get better and help you know improve our health and i mean all that kind of thing um and people say great let's have it more let's more of it uh but at the same time you get this other side to the whole equation so everything has to be, uh, you know, diligently, rigorously scrutinized before we buy into these things. It seems like we're at a bit of a crossroads here because in one of the videos I watched, you did mention that we are, you know, we we are in the process of some sort of a transition. Like we're we're changing. Things are changing, and there's more than one path we can take. So I think we're really. We're, we're at a point where we're either going to go down a path that encourages human flourishing and, you know, the sanctity of life and the benefit to humanity, 
or not right so is that do you, do you want to comment on that your your comments about how we're looking at we are in a type of a revolution and things are changing yes um, what do you, yes what do you say about we are that? yes we are i mean are the you know the the we've been through the technological transition cycle there's a lot of scholarship on it and um i mean the 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 cycle is driven by innovations and by energy energy transitions and 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 innovations usually which are predicated on and and usually they take place in the transportation system so you had in you know it used to be when we moved from wind and sail technology which opened up the world to exploration we moved then to to steam and uh, and and railways, and then we move to internal combustion engine and cars and these, you know, the railways. I mean, the way these things change things. We in this, it's um, the, the 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 magnitude of the of the changes that these innovations affected are staggering. I mean, when you stop and consider how well the railway system opened up, the wind and sail technology brought people to North America, you had, then you had the, you know, you had the railway system, which opened up the West. It happened here in Canada. It happened in the West, in, in the U.S. Then you had the oil, oil and auto uh, 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 era, which brought us suburbs and highway systems and, and um, three-car garages. And then from there, we moved to the internet. The internet then changed everything again. You know, then it, it opened up. And these systems have tended so far to be all about delivering goods and services faster, further, more cheaply. Okay? That's mostly what they've been. They've all been about improving the quality of life and, and creating, um, you know, and, and create, bringing all kinds of things to us that we wouldn't have had otherwise, and, and they arrive faster and more cheaply. Okay, so you have to think about, you know, how, how all those transitions worked and the big changes that they affected on, on, on the world, on the planet. Now we're looking at the full effects of the digital revolution. And the question is, where does that take us? Because it's no longer merely about faster, further, more cheaply. It's about who we are, what we are. They're fooling around with our, you know, our, 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 um, you know, what it means. Well, in fact, actually, Klaus Schwab actually says this. It could actually change what it means to be a human being. So, you know, we really have to think about where science and technology now takes us because before we, you know, it was an, it, it was a no brainer for sure to get on a, on a train was great. I mean, it wasn't going to change your life. Well, maybe it would change your life because it got you somewhere faster for them or cheaply, but it didn't change your moral or your cultural outlook. This is different. What is happening now is different. And whether we're talking about, you know, how the how the vaccines, the, the what 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 goes into what these vaccines, or whether you know where that whole technology is going to take us, or you know, transhumanism is now a word that's out there. Transhumanism, think cyborgs. Sure, we all like our implants, so we've got new knees and new hips and things like that. But think where this goes, what the next step in all of that might be. Um, uh, the, the 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 implications here of that. Now, I mean, the people who are were quite um, eloquent on this whole subject are people like Yuval Harari. You know, he's a he's a World Economic 
forum favorite. He's always at their conferences. And of course, he's a best-selling author. He's an historian. And he he as well as a futurist. So he, you know, he he pulls this stuff together and gives us <laughs> gives us a glimpse of where some of this stuff might might go. I mean, uh, it's I mean, he's he's blatant about the fact, for instance, that automation now could obviate the need for our labor. Labor that, you know, gave us meaning and purpose in, in our lives to do good manual work and good hard labor. Uh, you know, we could end up, uh, he, he says, we're going to end up with a whole new class of people, which he openly calls use, the use, useless people, the useless class. Useless eaters. Yes. And, and, uh, and sure, what, you know, how, what are we going to do with them? How will we, you know, and so, and you can see this creeping in. I mean, universal basic income is, is a de facto recognition that we are going now to have this class of people that will be effectively unemployable for whatever reason. We will dignify it with all kinds of flowery language and Orwellian language. We will dignify, you know, it, it'll be, but you say to yourself, hold on, I mean, is this necessary? Is this necessary? Is this really what we want? Well, it's it's uh, interesting think? that you mentioned that because I was watching a video of one of the World Economic Forum. I, I can't remember his name. It's, it escapes me. But he's one of the senior speakers. And he was talking about how we now have the technology and capability to hack humans. And we can hack them and change them and make them. And I don't mean like hacking limbs off. I mean changing the way they think and the way they live. Sure. So not if you don't like the way your your population is is acting, well now you can hack them to make them more subservient and more submissive. And the technology really is there. I mean that's he's not wrong. But these yes. are the kind of ideas that they're talking about. Yes. No, absolutely. And I mean so it 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 raises big questions. I mean it has it has religious and moral import, philosophical import that um that that really has to uh, we we really have to come to have to think through before we allow this stuff mm -hmm. um, to happen. There's a question that came up. I'd like to know the answer. Uh, the question is: You said that the AHS contracted with the WEF. Do you know the names of the person or persons who signed the contract with AHS or on behalf of AHS? Pardon me. No, I don't. But but there and, and, uh, there is a fellow who is there's a video. If you just Google a, um, the Alberta Health Services and World Economic Forum, and there's a whole page and a nice video by a nice gentleman who talks it all up, and it sounds great. Anyway, sir, just Google it. I, I don't remember his name. He's uh, he's he, he's quite quite a highly placed in, in Alberta Health Services. So these aren't just conspiracy theories. This is real life. Oh, no, oh, no sure. Yeah. And then also, you and so is this digital ID um, thing that's going on with the with the Trudeau with the Trudeau um, government. I think if we had digital ID two years ago, um, there's no way I would have been able to stand up and protest what my government was doing. I really don't. Like well, a lot of these policies and things would have completely. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. So it's a, um, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hornet's nest of major, major issues. 
and and it's it's not a technical, financial, moral, and philosophical as well. Not, I mean, of course, scientific too. <laughs> the least of it. Yeah. But yeah, you see, we have now. I mean, the new prophets are our experts. People have more faith in experts than they do in politicians, for instance. So you know, um, and an expert comes along and tells them that this is good for them. So you know, how do you get people to think this through? That's 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 the big issue. How do you get them to think it through? It's it's a, a difficult process because we have people that they they go out on a limb, they stick their necks out, they speak out against something, and they stand to lose a lot for doing it. Uh, oftentimes they're persecuted, they lose their jobs, they lose their standing, lose their position, but they're trying to warn people. They're they're screaming from the rooftops. We need to change course because we're going to hit an iceberg and it's not going to be good. And, you know, I find that virtuous. I don't think it's virtuous to just stand with the next big thing. I find virtue in, in um, questioning things and making sure that what we're doing is the right thing before we do it. That's virtuous to me. Yes, yes, absolutely. And keep it local. I mean, solutions have to exist at local levels. And hopefully that you that way you maintain community, that way you maintain, you know, support systems, and that way you maintain your culture, maintain your um, values. So there's actually quite a few questions come up. One of them I find interesting is, is there WEF police stations? Is that a thing? No, you're, I think I think the viewer is is confusing this with the Chinese, who apparently have a number of police stations uh, located around Canada. Yeah, but that's okay because that was just to administer stuff that needed administration while they couldn't get back to China for uh, because of COVID. So so don't worry about the Chinese police station. Police stations is totally fine, totally normal. It's not normal. <laughs> uh, what other questions are on here? Uh, there was a comment uh, regarding my my statement about Trudeau and his financial interest in this stuff. Uh, there's a man named David Martin who goes into this in quite a bit of detail. Um, yes. I believe the name of the company is Akitas Therapeutics or something like that. Anyway, it's, a, yes. it's yes. something to consider I'm, for sure. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with his. I'm, I'm familiar with his arguments. Okay. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, question. Are you aware that the WEF is partnered with Alberta Investment Management Corporation, AMCO, a crown corporation owned by the province of Alberta and one of Canada's largest and most diversified institutional investment managers, established in 2008, which manages $100 billion. And they invest 32, or that they invest 32 Alberta-based pensions, endowments, and government funds, including the Alberta Savings Trust Fund. I'm, not, no yeah, I'm, aware, I'm aware of that. No, no, AIM is, no, I'm very familiar. I'm not very familiar, but I do know of, 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 of that organization. And yes, very prestigious, very effective, and has been very successful. But I can't, so I can't imagine why, why, why they'd be partnering with the WEF. Does, does the viewer say what the contract is or what the, why they've partnered with the WEF? No, the que the question was basically, are you aware that the WF has partnered with them? And I don't know anything about it because I haven't looked into it previous to this, but I don't know it either. Maybe we'll try and we'll try and look that up after the fact and comment back uh, at a later date when we have some more information. Uh, is the Great Reset a real threat to democracy? That is a viewer question. 
Yes, I, you know, I'm, I'm leery of big sweeping statements like that. I mean, look at, look at, look at where that got Biden. I mean, you know, oh, if you, re- if you elect, if you elect the Republicans, you kiss, kiss democracy goodbye. Good grief, democracy yeah. in action there for Pete's sake. Um, is it a threat to democracy? It, it at the at the moment, no, it is not. But if you know if the whole point about what what they're doing, and if they were to become what what I fear, which is an adjunct of the United Nations, in which they have absolute control over how the world economy works, then yes, absolutely they would, because what is happening is this thing about you know faceless technocrats in remote institutions coming up with their Stalinist solutions for how the world should work without uh, the rest of us have a, having a say in it whatsoever. And, you, you know, and we have, and, and, and countless politicians who slip in and out of their jobs, uh, who then are stuck with treaties that previous governments have signed, and then they look bad because they have to want to pull out because they don't like the, the democratic implications of what's going on. So ultimately, the answer is yes, it would be if they actually got their way. Now, thank goodness, for instance, the the World Health Organization, which actually went through a whole process in order to assign to itself absolute power over how pandemics are managed globally, uh, whether India and China would would listen to them, given given them the, the 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 time of day on that kind of thing, I don't know, but the rest of us certainly would, um, is thank goodness they didn't get it through. Why? Because the African nations objected. And of course they, African nations have had it up to here with, you know, Western, West, the Western countries. Um, and had so many bad experiences said, no, thank you very much. We don't want you telling us about how to handle pandemics. So, but I gather they're right back at the table trying to figure out how to how to get this through. So, you know, there goes bye bye any democratic, you know, uh, rights where the next pandemic is concerned. Well, we may be more than a few steps into this, and from what you're from what I'm gathering from what you're saying is. It depends how much of our own sovereignty we give up to these outside organizations. And we've started to do that in Canada. As a matter of fact, our own prime ministers, I, I don't know if he slipped up, referred to Canada as a post as the first post-nation state, implying that we've given up some of our own control over our own destiny to outside forces and no longer govern ourselves. Yeah, I, yes, I, that, that would be the logical conclusion from what he said, except I don't think he knew what he was talking about at the time. Post-national state was just one of those fashionable terms and and, and used in political theories in circles. It, it, what it boils down to is, yes, you still have your nation state, but there are so many things going on. I mean, from open borders to, to uh, yes, international treaties to, you know, this, that and the other thing. And, you know, and, and that that. That, that the nation state itself ceases to have any meaning. And we are, that, is a, that is a real threat. And, and there are people out there who really believe that the nation state is, um, is, a, is a detriment to humanity, i.e. if we just gave up our borders and gave up our nationality and gave up you know, all this, that, and the other thing, that we would, you know, we would be better people. This utopian ideal that somehow or other we're all citizens of the world. 
But of course, it totally ignores the fact that you need an organizing principle of some kind uh, for how you conduct your life and, and how you conduct, you know, what rules you set for your communities and how you're going to interact with each other. So, you know, we, we all want our basic freedoms, but we all accept the fact that we do need to cooperate and obey certain rules in order to live together peace of, peacefully and also sign on to shared values and shared ideas about how, how the world should work. And, and I don't, you know, for my money, certainly, and I think there's a whole, <laughs> I think we'd be very hard pressed to find a better organizing principle than the nation state. Still the best one out there. You know, let, I'm sure there are all kinds of other ideas about how we should organize ourselves, but the nation state is still pretty good. Well, and it allows people to live in a place that governs the way they want to be governed and, and you yeah. know, has culture that they appreciate. And nobody, everybody's different. And we all, you know, we don't, we don't have to all be under the same rules. We can have different rules and different ethical boundaries for different uh, groups, but we can, you know, we can appreciate the differences. We don't have to subscribe to the same thing in order to, um, you know, coexist. At, mm -hmm. at least I don't mm -hmm. think. Indeed, indeed. But the globalist agenda clearly is uh, counter the nation state. There's no question about that. I agree. Uh, okay, so we're just over an hour here. So I'm going to just maybe take a couple more questions. Uh, this one here, uh, it's from, oh, it actually doesn't say, but it's off the Facebook page, I believe. Some believe there is a coordinated effort by the elite class to make the general public more reliant on government, wanting safety rather than freedom, and generally more slave-minded. Strong wording there. Do you believe this may be the case? Have you seen evidence of this? Interestingly, um, uh, Desmond Matthias Desmond deals with this, touches on this on this issue in his book, uh, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, and um, I mean he. He points out absolutely that there is one of the big, I mean, there, one of the big problems with, with uh, indiv having individual responsibility and living in free societies is how many people really don't want the responsibility of having to make decisions for themselves, being accountable for them, having to look after themselves, all those things. And that there is, you know, a whole cadre of people who really are quite happy being told what to do. Well, those, those things are scary at times. Yes, of course. And and who were quite happy to. And in fact, I mean, this is I mean, this is his whole thesis around the psychology of totalitarianism, that 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 if you have a, if you have a situation where people are sufficiently unsettled, that is, they go through enough um, enough in terms of personal traumas, societal traumas, and they are. Um, discombobulated to the extent that you know they are disturbed and and they have and and or, and and they you know have a hard time finding meaning in life and they uh, something comes along that unsettles them even further poor relationships bad jobs uh you know some i mean um i you know the i use the example my i like the example of what happened in nazi germany where you have a people, I mean, a very good people who went through the First World War, came out of the First World War, went into a major hyperinflation. And um, anybody who, I mean, none of us has any sense of what a hyperinflation is like, having lived through it. It only lasted a year, but 
it reduced people, it not only debased the currency, but totally debased human character to the extent that your money was worthless. And there, so people had to re resort to extraordinary measures just to live. I mean, people lost their savings, their pensions went out the window. They, you know, but people thieved, they prostituted themselves in order just to get by. So they went through this whole traumatic experience. And then as they were just coming out of it, and then they went, you know, they had to, as they were coming out of it and new currency and what have you, then you know, some of the foreign, um, uh, some they started getting foreign aid. The U.S. stepped up and helped them out with their with with their uh, rebuilding their, their economy. And lo and behold, along comes 1929, in which they bang, and 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 the Great Depression, and they are right back at square one unemployment, massive unemployment, still fresh, the hyperinflation is still fresh in their mind. Well, somebody like Hitler comes along, promises them stability and that they're, you know, good people and that they're going to do great things as well. I mean, it was a no-brainer. I mean, these were people who were traumatized and then they just fell right into the totalitarian system. Mankind's always looking for a savior. Yes. And but in but in their case, they had been so, as I say, traumatized by so many by, by those events of the, you know the previous decades, a lot a war that they lost, massive reparations, hyperinflation. I mean, it was just hair raising what they went through, um, and they were completely which set them up for then what followed. Now we have not been through anything that bad. But all you need is a society which is which is you know not happy with you know life as no their families are falling apart their jobs are meaningless I mean there's a book out there with with you know this actually is called shit jobs you know that's that's a huge phenomenon think of the people now who are staying home from work they don't want to come into work quiet well, used to it quiet quitting well mm -hmm. you know. But that's again another sign because it says that people don't want, you know, a healthy society wants to work. A healthy society wants to get up and go. And they want to have babies. They want to work hard. They want all the stuff that that's going to bring them. And that's not happening right now. And why isn't it happening? And that's like, you know, it's a psychological phenomenon. So, um, yeah, the answer to the, to, to the viewer's question is, um, I think I lost sight of it, pretty, but have I answered it? <laughs> I, I think I answered it anyway. I, I think so. It was, uh, it was, the question was, are, are people becoming more reliant on government? And is this something that's right? And so you've got, you know, out of all of that, people just sign on and say, please look after me. Yeah. Quite happy to have that happen. And that, you know, how you change that around is, is um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I mean, I do know. I mean, what you need is a rip-roaring economy that gives everybody a shot at really improving their life. You know what? That's what we're trying to do in Alberta here. We're trying to do something that's never been done before and lead by example and show people that there is a better way than buying right. into this woke, global, yeah. elitist agenda where where human life isn't celebrated we we want to do something different here and there's a really big growing movement which is you know that's what the app is is promoting 
there, so now that I mentioned that I'm only doing a couple more questions, there's a bunch of questions come in. So I'll, <laughs> I'll try and get through them quickly. So uh, question, according to Leslin Lewis, MP, the WF is in favor of and openly promotes the use of digital ID, uh, ESG scores, and central bank digital currencies, among other policies that centralize power to the federal government. Is, in fact, the WEF actively involved with the Canadian federal government in promoting this? And I already know the answer is yes. And have they signed agreements or partnered with WEF on any of this? Also, has the UN, in fact, partnered with the WEF to accelerate Agenda 2030? Um, don't know. Don't know. But it wouldn't. I wouldn't be at all surprised. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of a central bank digital currency, never mind your own local currency. I mean, there's a whole thesis out there that says we'd have one central bank and it's, I mean, they want to cut out the banks too, right? So it's not just that you've got the central bank who's sending you your money and you're paying your taxes and it's all a one-way effort. Cut out the government, cut out, cut out the uh, cut out the, I mean, the, the you know, your, forget your RBCs and your Scotia banks and everybody else and your local your bank around the corner. I mean, these are going to could end up disappearing as well. So, no, e-commerce is, and is, is, I mean, e-commerce is just the tip of the iceberg to where this could go. Um, and again, you see, it's, it's, it's a tool for manipulation and management and, and control. So well, this is why all this stuff is so scary. Um, and, uh, uh, but yes, it's definitely out there. And you know who's doing it, how quickly, I don't know. I'll tell you one thing, for instance, Mark Carney, I know while he was um, governor of the Bank of England, commissioned a lot of studies on this, um, presumably with a view to implementing it while he was government, while he was governor there, and I know he's discussed this at places like Jackson Hole and other, other prestigious places. Um, he he, um, so he certainly is up on all of this, as as they all are, as they all are. Um, but most of us, of course, we don't know what our central banks get up to. <laughs> And I mean, I even our politicians aren't very good at understanding our central banks and monetary policy and 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 fiscal policy and what have you. I mean, this is one of the sad things about the state of of of, of the quality of our politicians too. That I I became all too aware of our politicians' lack of involvement in politics and policy over the last two years because I've met quite a few of them, and I've asked certain politicians, MLAs and MPs about their opinions on certain bills or pieces of legislation that have been passed. And my response was, oh, well, I didn't even read that. I'm like, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you mean you didn't read? You yes. voted on it. Yes. How do you, you, you yes. voted on policy that you didn't read? I mean, that's, that speaks to another, another whole big issue, which is the state of our political, you know, our party system and what our political parties are really all about and what they're up to. I mean, the sad fact is that you the only way you get elected these days is if you know how to sell memberships. Mm -hmm. You're there as a cash cow for your party. That's basically it. And to and to vote for whatever what whatever is is um the central, you know, the um uh, the prime minister's office, the premier's office tells you to vote for. So no, you're basically relieved of having to do any homework on any specific policy issue. 
so and that, no that is scary yes it is very yes, scary that's party that's party discipline and i mean you know you understand where why party discipline is necessary uh and because you don't get i mean one of the things about our parliamentary system is the fact that it does get things done and it gets things done thanks to party discipline um and that we have this first past the post system and and all the rest of it things do get done um you know you don't get tangled up in a mess like they do for instance in the, in the u.s but the um but yeah i mean there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole other uh, whole other uh um webinar that can be done just on the party system and what you know how it could be improved and how you could improve the effectiveness of your of our politicians i i certainly agree so i i don't actually know how long this webinar is supposed to go so i'm just going to keep on putting up questions until someone says hey it's uh, time to wrap up uh and these two actually if you're okay with that sure uh, no problem these two actually go hand in hand so the question is are you worried that the great reset will become reality in canada if so, how do we stop it? And I think we touched on this a little bit uh, previous, but maybe we'll go a little further into it. The second question is, how does the average person fight back or protect themselves from these type of agendas? So number one, are you worried about the Great Reset coming to Canada? What do we do to stop it? And how do we stop it? Well, there's no question that this is part of the progressive left, uh, of the, certainly their ambition, part of their ambition. I mean, just the fact that, that you've had uh, people like Trudeau and Freeland actually using language directly from uh, prescribed by the World Economic Forum. I mean, this is build back better. That's all World Economic Forum language. Opportunity. The pandemic was an opportunity, you know, to, hey, you know, build back better. So um, this is, this is you know, not only is the World Economic Forum coming up with prescriptions for how the world should work, they're actually giving you the language for how to sell it and how to you know, sell it to your, 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 um, your constituents. So yes, now in the end, it is, we still are a sovereign nation. Um, and in the end, we can still, you know, make our views known to our politicians, and we can certainly make sure that the politicians we want can be um, can be uh, uh, are elected. That much power we still have, but that depends on, as I say, you know, people being aware and educating them, themselves about these things and seeing past seeing past the glamour and the authority of of the experts. Because of course, in the end, it's the experts then who are our new prophets. By the way, I mean, I saw that's a great line from from the book against the Great Reset: the new prophets are our experts. Because we don't have even have religion anymore. I mean, I'm sure many of your viewers do, and I do. But you know, a lot of people out there don't have any religion, and um, so you know, where, who were they looking to? They're looking to the experts to be the the, the, the prophets. So the new gods. Um, the new gods and they're willing to swallow it all hook line and sinker without without giving it a second thought uh so and and science you know science is the new the new religion so you know you have to be able to uh see past it and and the i mean the other side that's very seductive about all of this is of course that along with these digital you know tracking systems and what have you you know you're also going to have all kinds of promises about how much healthier you're going to be and how it's going to be much easier to you know so so you'll get that kind of thing will be thrown in with it 
um, you know, the pandemic uh, was all about, you know, they scared us to death. Again, here's one of the tech, here's, here's a technique that, that is well used in totalitarian regimes where you create a situation that involves a lot of fear. You scare people to death. Well, they did it with us with all those case numbers, right? Um, and all those videos from Italy and China, people collapsing dead um, from COVID. And so they scared us to death. So of course we rushed off to get the vaccine. I, um, but this is a standard technique. You know, you create fear and then you come along with the authoritarian regime that is going to take your fear away, make you feel safe. So again, we have to be prepared to look past our fears and say, is my safety really worth that? And am I going to be safe anyway? There's a quote that comes to mind, and I can't remember exactly how it goes, but it it's something like, um, those who give up their freedom in the name of safety inevitably lose both. Yes, yes, yeah. So here's a, a statement. And I'm going to look into this because this is the first I've heard of it. That's not a question, but uh, it's kind of interesting that this came up. So it's, it's not a statement that he wants to make public, but uh, this isn't a right or a left thing. This whole idea of what the WF is promoting, uh, ESG, digital currency, digital IDs, all of these things that lead to totalitarianism. At the UCP AGM, their policy was being voted on regarding ESG. I was very surprised to see it. It was something I would expect to see at the NDP AGM. So no, uh, Gabriel's correct. This isn't a right or a left thing because what I find from the right-leaning uh, uh, political groups these days is that oftentimes they're more, more comfortable going with the next shiny new thing rather than focusing on their core conservative values. And so this isn't a right or left thing. I mean, any politician of any stripe can be affected by this and it will make its way into party policy at one point or another Indeed. to appease yeah. those new gods yes yes well uh the viewer will be interested to know that no less a light than jamie diamond if you've never heard of jamie diamond be aware that he is probably the most powerful banker in north america he runs jp morgan uh and is a um i mean he's come out solidly against ESG in un no uncertain terms. He's had there's a video out there of him making his views known in very colorful language. Um, no, the problem is that here we are. You know, there, there again. Here's a great. There's a great essay in the book about the economic effects of of the world of, of the Great Reset, which is here we are in North America throughout the West. In fact putting all our investments into things like ESG and climate change and you know, tr you know trying to do all the woke things and equality of outcome and this, that, and, and the, in, you know, the environment, social governance, social governance, I mean, this is all the things that ESG stands for, um, and massive amounts of money on top of all of the debt that went into, uh, that we incurred as a result, First of all, of the Great Recession, because loads of liquidity was spilled into the economy, and then the pandemic, even more liquidity went into the economy. I mean, the, the, our debt is just through the roof. Um, so here we are dealing with all this debt, and on top of it, we're now, you know, pandering to and dealing with climate change and all those other issues, while 
you've got China has already implemented the Great Reset. How has it done it? 5G. 5G technology, there's an argument in the book to the effect, and I think he's pretty close to getting this right. 5G technology promises to be the new railway system in this world. Why? Because it is a tracking device that means that you can track all of your all of your goods, all of your uh, managed through your, your ports with this simple electronic innovation <laughs> uh, that moves things in mass and bulk in a way that has never been moved before. And it is happening right now because what you've got in, in, in China, I forget which port it is, I mean, a massive port system, which is, has containers moving out, I mean, by the millions, while in the West, we can't even get a few ships going with goods and services. This is, uh, this is where our, you know, this is, the, this is all about the supply chain, right? I wish I had the figures in front of me. I don't, but it's in my, it's in my, it's in my essay on, on, on C2C Journal, exactly what, is, what, what China has accomplished with 5G. Where where can we find it's, that? Oh, it's, 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 pardon me. Where can we find that? Where can we find some of your other? Just, uh, just your Google, just Google C two C. That's um, capital C to the digit C number two C, and then my name Margaret Copala. But even if you go to C two C Margaret Copala M A R G R E T K O P A L A. And you'll see there my most recent essay is on Against the Great Reset. Uh, the previous essay is the Matthias Desmond piece on totalitarianism, the psychology of totalitarianism. The previous essay is on uh, why, the why the vaccine mandates had to go. And I dig down into some of the science around, uh, around the vaccines. And the first essay was on um, on why treatments are so controversial, i.e. ivermectin and, and hydroxychloroquine. And there I drill down into the, um, the, uh, the business and the, and, I mean, the, and the medical industrial complex that's, that's behind the vaccines. Right. So uh, we posted that up in the comments, I believe, as a link. So if you want to check that out, you feel free to do so. And actually, you probably should. Um, I'm going to I'm going to thumb through there. Where do I find that in the chat? In chat. Pardon me? Do I find that in the chat area? Uh, I see, like I see it on my side here, but I think what they've done is they posted it on the Facebook live stream as well. Let's so see. our the viewers can see the link to that you just mentioned. Okay. Uh, what else? Oh, speaking of supply chains, the question came up a little while ago. How is the WEF involved in our food sources and supply chains? Is it concerning? I do not believe that that's uh, to hand yet, um, but I wouldn't be surprised that the many of their membership are involved in food services and uh, and transportation systems there too. And don't forget, you've got Bill Gates who's who's buying up all this farmland. Yeah, nobody's quite sure why and what he's going to do with it, but solar I mean, panels end up eating bugs. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, we have a cricket farm in Alberta, apparently. Uh, at the Calgary Stampede this year, they featured mealworm, or was it mealworm hot dogs and cricket? I, I can't remember what it was, but yeah, they were serving mealworms and crickets at the Calgary Stampede, of all places. 
And I think they sold some, which is even more concerning. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's all the questions that I have, unless I missed some. Uh, one question I don't understand, I'll just throw it out there just in case it's something you're familiar with. What is your opinion of mediated reality? Ooh, that's a new term for me. Never heard of it. What the man? Hmm, mediated reality. I mean, this sounds this uh, this sounds really woke and and uh, hmm, I'm not sure, but I'll maybe I'll I'll do some little Google searches later on and look into it, so I can answer next time. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much all the time I've got. It's we're an hour and forty five minutes into it, and it's been very enlightening. I mean, you've got you go into depth of some of these things that I've only been feeling and you kind of explain it in a very well thought out and easily digestible manner. So I really appreciate that. And I'm sure the viewers do too. So um, one more time, just let everybody know where they can find your stuff. Uh, so if they have any more questions, they can read, hopefully read first. And then um, I'm assuming there's some sort of a contact you thing on your page or something like that or uh yes um i think i think there's an email address anyway yeah the um the c2c journal is where my most recent work is i've been doing uh, you know since the since the since the pandemic i that got me going and i got back to writing again so i was as it were kind of came out of retirement to do that because i was just so riled up um and um so I'm just hoping beyond hope that that this this doesn't turn into the biggest humanity, the biggest public policy disaster in human history. I'm just so worried about this. Um, the um, and if you talk to Peter McCullough, you'll know why I feel that way. Um, mm -hmm. The um, so that's what really got me out of retirement and got me back into writing again. So C2C is my most recent work. Um, I'm also the author of a book uh called the um the dog bone portfolio it's an investor's guide into what i call the first Kondratiev winter of the 21st century this is the technological transition cycle that i talked about i know a lot about this and um the um uh so i still have some copies available for that if, if you there's a website for that which is the dog bone dog bone portfolio.com and um what else uh, I still have some of my old columns are still up. I look at them every now and again. I think, yeah, that still makes sense. So uh, while I was a columnist, I did a lot of work on, um, I, I sort of worked in, in, in three, kind of three motifs kind of developed. First of all, I took a strong position on uh, marijuana legalization, cannabis legalization, which um, and the mental health effects, particularly because of its mental health effects. And the second thing I really dug down into was Senate reform. I know a lot about Senate reform and have some interesting ideas on that. And uh, and immigration. And as a result of my work back then on immigration issues um, and what I was learning about it and how it was being managed, uh, I I became involved with a large group of former ambassadors and and um, public, senior public servants uh, on the subject of. Um, immigration. And um, so there's, there's some enlightening stuff there about that as well. Well, regarding the Senate reform, I see a comment that uh, there is some interest to have you back to talk about that, because that's something that is very interesting to us in Alberta. And yes, of course. Yes, of course. I, uh, 
no, I followed it with great interest at the time, and uh, and I still think that there's some, I still think that there's some constructive work to be done in this area without really, you know, digging down into the Constitution and doing, you know, doing all that stuff that we went through with the Charlottetown Accord. Uh, politicians have since sworn off it because they don't want to, they don't want to open that can of worms. But it seems to me there's a way of going about this that is. Um, that is, I mean, for Pete's sake, you had Ralph Klein and, and uh, Jean Charest, for instance, um, did some very good work in their day when they set up the House, the house of the, 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 I think at the time they were calling it the House of the Provinces, but when the premiers were meeting, they had, they had this little thing that they, um, that they call the House of the Provinces. So that's something that I think should really be looked at again and pursued in some way. Absolutely. So that kind of, uh, helps me institutional integrity i mean i think i think that you know a core a core security of any nation state is institutional integrity and um i mean that that is something that we really really in this country need to rehabilitate i mean our party system our you know our legislatures and uh, and our and our key institutions that is fine, that is finally i mean our institutions are the backbone of your country and I mean, in in a, in a country like ours, we have Quebec and so many diverse interests and you know, struggling and pulling and pushing and what have you. And you have to have watertight institutions that uh, everybody whose who's integrity everybody buys into. Yeah, like we used to have journalists like that. I remember that. It was comforting to know that we had integrity in our uh, in our media and we could be, you know, we things that were offered to us through the media we're generally unbiased told both stories and we're free to make our own so it, it does feel nice to have institutions with integrity the media being one of them that's right exactly yes so some of this last little bit of the conversation is going to help me a lot with my wrap-up because i wasn't quite sure how i'm going to wrap i was going to wrap up but i do have to because i've got 10 minutes before my next interview um oh, so what i wanted to say is the alberta prosperity project we are a group of uh, very motivated individuals. We see these things happening around us. We see our federal government taking us down the path uh, that groups like the WEF and the WHO want for Canada. Uh, we don't think it's good. We think it's anti-human. And, and a lot of people share these interests. Now, the problem with Alberta within Confederation is that our voices are not loud enough to influence change. We just can't do it. I mean, the entire Western part of Canada We'll vote blue. It doesn't matter. We get liberal policies for the next four years. And that's the way it is. It's, it's been that way for 117, 117 years. And we can't do anything about that. But we also know that it is critically important that somebody or some group or some province stand up and we say, we are not going down that path. We're not, not going down the path to own nothing and be happy. We're not going to eat crickets. We are not going to have a digital currency and digital ID that you can shut off at any time. We are going to maintain our rights and freedoms. And federal government, if you don't like that, then we're not going with you. And this isn't to say that Alberta wants to leave or anything like that. But Alberta, there's a strong growing movement here that wants the leverage to tell the federal government, we're not going there with you. So that's what the Alberta Prosperity Project is about. It's about taking a stand and leading by example, and if need be, providing a place that is free of all these, these things we've been discussing. Now, I hope that's not the case. I hope that we 
uh, can be effective in negotiating with the federal government to stay away from all this WEF, WHO, global agenda crap that, that we're seeing, but it may not happen. So that's that's my message for tonight is people are asking, what do we do? That's what we do. We stand up, we use our voices, we take a stand. We give our politicians the leverage they need to negotiate with the federal government and say, no, we're not doing this. That's the way we win this kind of thing. It's never been about trusting in politicians. It's never been about hoping that a politician is going to save us. It's always been about us using our voices and taking a stand. And this is no different. So for all of you who are asking, what do we do? That's my opinion. That's what we do. We get involved in organizations like APP who say no to this stuff. And we build the membership to a point where we can't be ignored. And we're doing that. And conversations like this help immensely educate people as to why we need to do that. So, I mean, I can't even thank you enough for the work you do in order to get these things, like the digging you do to get this stuff to the public to say, hey, pay attention. This is what's happening. Um, we have to choose our path wisely because up until even two years ago, when this, the COVID restrictions affected me personally, I had my head in the sand and I didn't get involved and I didn't pay attention or do any digging. So, um, you know, from someone who has just started looking at this stuff to someone like you, who has been doing this for, you know, a lifetime, it, uh, it really means the world to me because had you not done that work, um, and just started it now, we probably wouldn't have the tools we need to prevent these things going forward. So thank you. Yes. Yes. Well, there's some excellent material out there. Read the books that, that I discuss, you know, at C2C journal and, um, and go from there. I mean, the arguments are really well articulated far better than I can do. And but from major authorities, I mean, people who really know what they're talking about. I mean, I can give you the general, I'm a generalist, you know, I can give you the general picture and, and a pretty good picture, but, but it's not the same thing as really digging in and have, you know, learning from the people who, who, who really thought this through. Mm -hmm. Well, so I guess I'll close with that. If you haven't already, check out that link. It is c2cjournal.ca. You'll find that literature and some of the digging um, that's been done. And also, if you like this kind of thing and you want us to continue doing this, if you haven't already, please get your membership with the Alberta Prosperity Project. Doing so um, not only helps us do stuff like this with finances, but it also gives us a metric as to how receptive people are to this and how much appetite there is. So the more memberships we have, the more we know that this is what people want to hear and we uh, continue doing it. So please uh, visit albertaprosperityproject.com and get your membership today if you haven't already. And Margaret, I would like to say thank you very much again for being a guest on our webinar here. And uh, I'm... I, I'm really interested to see this, uh, if we can make it happen, a whole webinar on Senate reform, because uh, that's that's very near and dear to most of us in Alberta. Okay, count me in. Awesome, right on. Well, I'm sure uh, Sean will get in touch with you and we'll line that up. And in the meantime, I will say goodnight and thank you very much. Thanks for watching and enjoy the minus 30 here in Alberta. Oh, because, oh wow! It's so, oh wow! Of yeah, course, it's I minus. Oh, it is there. Holy minus twenty nine in Mirror, Alberta today. It's been <laughs> a wonderful day of frozen water lines everywhere, and I'm sure I'll have another one tomorrow.
Everybody, that's how you spell my, that's how my name is spelled. So go to C2C Journal, Google Margaret Coppola, and you'll, you'll get the articles. Awesome. Okay, thank you. Thanks again. Good night, everybody. Yeah.